0: If you've uh, seen any of the news over the past week or even last night or this morning, you know that there has been a series of violent attacks in various places around the nation. A, A Walmart in South Haven, Mississippi this last Tuesday, a gunman opened fire. Yesterday morning at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas. another gunmen, opened fire, leaving 20 dead and 26 wounded. This morning at 1 a.m. in Dayton, Ohio, violence erupted in the streets as again somebody opened fire on the people, killing nine, the last I heard, and leaving over 20 others wounded. These acts of violence and the apparent disregard for human life that they demonstrate seem to be increasing occurrences in our culture, in our nation, in our world, and when these things happen, it often leaves us with more questions than answers. It leaves us in a place searching for answers. It often has the effect of impacting people on different levels. For some, it drives us to a deeper relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we seek refuge in his presence. For others, they use this as an, as an excuse to run away from God, even while they're blaming him for allowing such things to occur. I was praying early this morning, thinking about these incidents and this tragedy and just wondering what message should I bring this morning. What would God have me preach? And in those quiet moments, the Lord impressed upon me afresh the significance of the very message I had been working on all week. A message coming to us out of the Sermon on the Mount, a a message that is not a message that addresses the mysteries of God's will, as we consider His permissive will versus His decreed will, nor is it a message of the wonders and how God works through tragedy to accomplish His greater purposes. Even as we recognize the great truths that we proclaim week in and week out concerning Christ and the wonder of what He's done for us. And while it is all ultimately about Christ, the message that we'll be looking at this morning is not a message that deals so much with why God does what He does, but how are we to respond and to react, and to live in light of such darkness in the world. That is what this message is about this morning. Is it is a message on love. It is a message in particular about loving our enemies, even as Christ has loved us. It is a message about the hope of the gospel in the midst of a discouraging and desperate world. Before we get to our text this morning, I just would like for us to once again bow our heads in prayer for those that have been impacted by these acts of violence. Lord, We look around this world and we see the brokenness and the hurt and the desperation and the need for answers and the need for hope. And Lord, we don't always know what to say to people. We don't always know how to respond, but Lord, we do know that you do have answers. We do know that you, Lord, are at work. We do know that you are a comfort to those who seek refuge in your presence. And so, Lord, as we remember the victims in South Haven, Mississippi, El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, and really around this nation, Lord, where senseless acts of violence are just increasingly common, Father, we pray for a revival in the hearts of your people. We pray for a renewal in our nation, Lord, that people will recognize their need for Christ. That they will come to you, Lord, in their desperate times and that you will bring healing to their hearts and strength to their families, hope to their lives. And we pray this morning, Lord, as we look to Your Word, that we might understand Your instruction, that we may be convicted in our hearts, Lord, of how we're to live in this world and how we're to interact with others. We pray, Father, that You would teach us, that Your Spirit would change us. And that you would strengthen us in our faith and give us a boldness to live it out in the presence of others so that they might come to know you. And we ask it all in the precious name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. I'll ask you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. We'll continue our verse-by-verse exposition of the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus has been teaching us of the righteousness of the kingdom. That is what it means to follow after Him. He's told us of what? the character of righteousness looks like for those that are children of God. The Beatitudes give us an outline, if you will, of, of what a child of God ought to conduct themselves. And then he's talked about the significance and the importance of God's law and the eternal nature of it, knowing that he has not come to set aside the law, but to fulfill the law. And then calling us out as followers of God, and more importantly for us, followers of Christ, that we would be the salt and light of the world. Salt that preserves and heals and light that shines in the darkness and gives hope to a discouraged and desperate people. Jesus says, in following that instruction, he has been addressing aspects of God's law which the people had heard and been taught for many years. And he's confronting the misinterpretation, the misapplication of God's word that the people had embraced and that the religious leaders had been promoting. And he wants them to understand that the law cannot be reduced to, to that which makes you righteous. Because the law does not make us righteous. The law only brings on us guilt. The law shows us where we fall short. And so Jesus, in explaining the law, He wants us to understand that that we can't attain to righteousness by keeping the law, but that the law exposes for us our dependence on Christ. The law exposes to us that it is not our own righteousness that makes us acceptable to God, but it is the righteousness of Christ who attains that righteousness and took our sin upon Himself. That's what we need. He reveals our need for His righteousness in our failings. But He also, in pointing us to the reality and the truth of the law, He's also giving us direction. He's giving us instruction on what it means to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness. You see, because as children of God, as those whose sins have been washed away by the blood of the Lamb, we are called to a life of holiness. We are called to live a life of righteousness. We are called to live a life that reflects the character of Christ. So in each direction, each instruction that Jesus comes to in this latter half of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is, is a, attacking the false understanding of the law to give us a real understanding of the law. He's, he wants us to understand that, that there is a desire that God has for us to be righteous and it is, and it is not in a self-righteousness but it is isn't in a genuine submission to God's will and purpose for our life and in recognizing that only through His grace and mercy can we be accepted and that in Him we should pursue that which is pleasing to Him in fulfilling or in following the instruction given to us in God's Word. And as we come to chapter 5 verse 43 Jesus again addresses a a shortfall in the instruction of the religious leaders of the day and he wants us to understand as it comes to interpersonal relationships because this is the area in which he's dealing when it comes to interpersonal relationships it is not about how we feel but it is about what God's Word says it is about the truth of God's Word and so Jesus confronts that reality in, in our lives to help us know that what the truth of God's Word and that we might respond in accordance with truth rather than in accordance with our own passions and desires. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's Holy Word. Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 43 I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's Word. To God's people. Amen. You may be seated. Once again, Jesus begins in revealing the error of the religious leaders in those familiar words as we've been working our way through this section of text. He says, you have heard it said. This is the shortfall in which you have heard and what you've been exposed to. This is the, the false understanding and interpretation of God's law. And he seeks to give us a right understanding and a right application of that law. And even as I say that, as I was studying this yesterday as a matter of fact, I was just reminded that in our own culture, in church culture in our nation, in the things that I read about and the things that I see, that people have a tendency to make the same accusation against the church today that Jesus was making against the religious leaders of his day. And especially when it comes to certain cultural topics, certain hot button issues, people will say, well, you've misinterpreted God's word. You've misapplied God's word. Because what they're doing in a lot of cases, and not to say this doesn't sometimes happen, but in a lot of cases what's happening in the world around us is they've adopted a certain perspective on God and on Christ, and what they've done is they've said, well, you've misinterpreted what God's Word says, and and you're using it for your own purposes, but in reality, what they're doing, they're saying, because God is a God of love, that He wouldn't do this, or He wouldn't say that, or He wouldn't accept this, or He wouldn't allow that. And yet, what they're doing is they're taking an aspect of God's character and they're ripping it out of God's word and they're ignoring the rest of what God's word says. And I want to caution you as we look at this text and as Jesus makes this accusation, I want to caution you of being too flippant about the way that we approach the scriptures. Because while certainly the religious leaders were out of line, Jesus makes that clear. He says, You've not taught the whole counsel of God. But if we propose to speak on behalf of God, if we propose to tell others who God is and what God's Word says, then we cannot divorce what we say from the rest of God's counsel. But we have to present an argument that, pro- that demonstrates and follows the whole counsel of God's Word. And as Jesus brings correction and instruction, that is exactly what He does. He doesn't give a new teaching divorced from what is revealed in the Old Testament. He clarifies for us what the Old Testament intended. He clarifies for us the reality of the application and the importance of God's Word as it was meant to be understood. And that is the big difference between what Jesus did in this and what our culture often does to us today. We cannot claim to be followers of Christ and reject the very things that His Word teaches. But we must submit ourselves to its truths. God's Word never changes. Because God Himself is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is in this passage, three different areas which Jesus addresses when it comes to explaining to us what real love is. We're going to cover the first couple this morning. As he offers to expound on God's instruction in the error of the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of his day, he begins by pointing out in their error the deception and feelings. Notice in verse 43, where he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Now, obviously, the first part of this we recognize as being an an accurate statement, right? Love your neighbor. Right? I mean, this in fact was what Jesus himself said was the great, you know, part of the greatest commandment, or the second greatest commandment. In uh, Mark chapter 12, God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, he says, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the religious leaders, they had been teaching that. They would taught, you shall love your neighbor, right? But did they teach it the way God intended for it to be taught, or did they even distort what that meant? By changing what love meant. By changing, Jesus deals in a later, at a later time, he deals with a, a young lawyer who asks him the question, or he asks him the question about the law, and Jesus says, um, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and the guy said, seeking to justify himself says, well, who is my neighbor? Right? Because there was not a clear understanding of who that was. And then from that, Jesus gives us the, the parable of the good Samaritan. And which we learn through that that the, the, the neighbor that Jesus referred to, that God's intending for us to understand, a neighbor is not just someone who lives next to you. It's not just somebody who's a friend of yours. It's not just somebody who you know from church. It's not just somebody who you get along with. It's not somebody who you like. It's not just somebody who, who you, may, you may come across that, that, uh, that you get along with. Your neighbor is the person who comes to you in need. That's who Jesus says the neighbor is. The neighbor is the, is the, the person um, that you encounter in life, the person that God puts in your path. That's your neighbor. That's the person you're supposed to love, regardless whether they look like you, regardless of whether they think like you, regardless of whether they have the same background as you or the same desires as you or the same interests as you. We have a a very bad habit because of our personal pride, because of our personal desires and our personal preferences, we have a really bad habit of alienating people who don't look like us or think like us or act like us, and we justify a a separation of us and them in, in our own mind because we're driven not primarily by the truth of God's Word, but we're driven by our own desires and passions and feelings. And that deceives us into doing that which God would not have us do. We are, because we're not acting in a way which is consistent with God's word. But we are doing the very thing that God tells us that we ought not to do. And so Jesus confronts this reality, this deception of feelings here, and, and helping, and he does this more so in the clarification, but I want to deal with it on the front end because this is where he deals with the instruction in particular, He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor. That's right. That's part of God's law. But how are we to love them? We're supposed to love them as ourselves, right? I mean, it it doesn't say that, but that is the the fullness of the, the, the teaching of Scripture. Love your neighbor, how? As yourself, right? Excuse me. And then the second part of the teaching that's quoted, you shall hate your enemy. Well, now obviously that's not quoted from anywhere in the Old Testament. Now, it's most likely that the the scribes and the the religious leaders, they were drawing from some texts in the Old Scripture that talk about Israel's conquering of the wicked people in the Promised Land that God was judging by Israel's hand, and they were throwing them out. And then there's also those uh, passages in the Old Testament which talk about those people who refused to help Israel as they were coming out of Egypt, and the Lord says, in Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 4, telling the uh, Israelites, no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And, And so they take these passages in the Old Testament, which loosely speak about the enemies of God, right? I mean, the people that Israel was driving out of the promised land, those were the enemies of God. Right and the Moabites and the Ammonites who didn't help them—they were considered to be their enemies—and they're taking something which was intended for applying it to interpersonal relationships. Because you understand that even in the Old Testament, even if God commanded through Moses for us to care for our enemies. I just consider this in, in Exodus to him: if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its, knee, there's a big difference between those applications that come at, in, in times of war in God's judgment than there are in those interpersonal relationships, which is what Jesus is dealing with. He's wanting us to understand, listen, those people that we might consider our enemies, those are not people that we are to shun. Those are not the people we're trying to bring harm upon. Those are not people that we're trying to, to see undone. But those are the people who oppose us, and maybe that we're opposed to them, those are the people that we're called to love bit of truth. The enemy likes the enemy and I'm talking about the devil here, he likes to take a little bit of truth and then to rip it from its context and then to add a little something to it and then to appeal to some emotional aspect and before you know it what started off as an aspect of truth has wandered so far away from its root that it's unrecognizable. And that's what happens when we allow God's Word to be ripped from context, when we allow our emotions to cloud our judgment and to block our understanding of the truth, we must come to understand that our feelings are the shallowest part of our being. Think about how quickly your feelings change, just in a moment. You hear about something and your feelings change. You can be happy, you can go from happy to sad in an instant. You can go from from joyful to angry. In a split second, and and a lot of times it's really just a matter of our own perception, because our and we allow our feelings to guide us through so many things, and yet it's so easy for us to be deceived by them. I mean, if I was to tell you a story about there was a guy who, who uh, walking down the street, he was attacked outside the First National Bank and is now in the hospital um, recovering in critical condition because of. The beating that he received. And if I were to tell you that, you might have one kind of emotional reaction. But then if I was to tell you that this guy was a a bank robber who had just come out of the bank, who had had wounded two guards and threatened the lives of, of 30 other people in the bank, you might have a very different emotional response. But it's just a difference of perspective. It's how much information you have. Perception changes based on the information that we're exposed to. And a lot of times we're forming opinions and we're reacting in the moment when we have about this much information. And we need to refrain from that and to respond to people in the truth as it's revealed to us in God's Word. And and the truth of the situation as it's revealed to us also helps to inform our decisions, but lead us to a place of hatred, but rather to a response of love. And this is what people it's often portrayed as love is often spoken of in our in our culture in our time as just some overwhelming feeling that we have towards someone or, or towards something. We talk about falling in love and out of love, and certainly there is an aspect of love which which involves our feelings. But when we're talking about biblical love, it's so much more than how we feel. And, and the call to love our neighbor, um, we see that being we see that being undermined. By the definition of love, because we tend to think of love as how we feel. So, well, yeah, I can love my neighbor as long as I'm in agreement with him, or as long as I like him, as long as he hasn't wronged me, as long as he hasn't done this. And then, of course, you know, we talked already about the, how we redefine who our neighbor is. And before long, because of the twisting of God's Word and because of the giving in to our emotions, hatred becomes acceptable against those who are not like us, or those who we don't like. And this is what Jesus is trying to expose to us here in the error of what has been taught, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's very a very clearly an emotionally driven instruction. And I want you to remember that Jesus had already linked hatred with murder, right? In the first command that he deals with, he says, you shall not commit murder, but I tell you, anybody who's hated his brother, right? Anybody who holds hatred in his heart is just as guilty as the one who's committed murder. But he doesn't dwell on this instruction of hating the enemy, but rather in correcting the error and correcting the deception of feelings, Jesus gives us the directive to love. Look at verse 44. He says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, Jesus doesn't even address the first part of the command. He doesn't tell us not to love our neighbor. Certainly, we should love our neighbor. But he leads us to do the harder thing to love your enemy. And actually, he gives us a twofold instruction here. He says, Love your enemy. And pray for those who persecute you. Now, we need to understand that this is, I mean, I think we do understand that this is a difficult instruction for anybody to receive. If we really think about and want to apply what God's word says here. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. How Hard is it to do that very thing? I think before we can even understand what Jesus means here we have to understand how he defines love. because as I already said, we tend to think love is more of a feeling and certainly there is a, a, an emotional aspect to love, especially the way we use it. but the word that we define or use as love has a lot of different meanings, even in our own language. we recognize, you know, the difference between someone saying, I love my dog and I love my wife. We understand the difference between somebody when someone says, I love pizza or, you know, I love my car. You know, we, I mean, there's, we, we understand that there are differences. In the, in the Greek, there's several different words. There's actually four different words that are commonly used in Greek. Three of them appear in the New Testament, that for and they're all translated as love. One, philia has a, a, the meaning of brotherly love. It's kind of that the love of friends. There, there is a, an eros love, which is a, a romantic type of love. And then there is the, the uh, storge love, which we don't find in the New Testament, but it's a, a, a family kind of love. And then there's this love that's most often spoken of in the New Testament. It is agape love. It is that God kind of love, that unconditional, sacrificial, intentional kind of love that God demonstrates towards Us, you see, when God tells us, or when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, He's not asking us to do anything that He hasn't already done. Romans five eight says that God demonstrates His love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You go on. You go on to verse number number ten there in in Romans chapter five, and it says that God reconciled us to Himself through the death of His Son, while we were His enemies. God has done the very thing through Christ which he asks us to do. Agape, it's that agape love. It is not love based on feeling, but love based on a promise. Love based on a determination to do for someone else over yourself. It is that kind of love which puts others' needs above our own. It was that kind of love that was demonstrated at the cross. And it is that kind of love that we are now called to, as Jesus tells us, to love our enemies. And I know, I mean, I I hear the objections. How can God expect me to love somebody that hurt me so bad? How can God expect me to love somebody that, that just seeks my hurt and has been so harmful to me? And usually the objections aren't usually directed towards God, but towards somebody who's trying to give this instruction. You don't know. you don't understand. Yes, I, I don't, and I can't, but God does, and He still calls us to love, because He understands and He knows and And it's the very thing, as I said, that He's done for us. It is a supernatural kind of love. It's not something that's easy for us. It's not something that we can do on our own. It highlights, in fact, for us our need for something greater than ourselves in order to carry it out. We need Christ in us to carry on the work that He's given us to do. And part of that work that He's given us to do in representing Him in the world is to love our enemies. I mean, Jesus is, of course, the great example of that. I mean, you think about Jesus hanging on the cross. What has he done? He's lived a perfect, righteous life. He's been arrested, right? He's been wrongfully accused. He's been beaten with whips. He's been spit upon. He's been mocked. He he's had been forced to carry this cross. He's had his hands nailed into the cross, his feet nailed into the cross. He's had a crown of thorns pressed down on his head. He's had all of this done to him for what? Because he preached in and around Jerusalem? Because he preached grace? Because he preached love? Because he, why? What has he done wrong? Nothing. But yet God was working through that to accomplish his purposes, to to accomplish redemption, to bring about salvation for all who would believe. And it might be easy for us to think and think about the love of Jesus and he went through all that and he did that and even and this is and, and this is the picture that we're given when Jesus is on the cross you remember what he prays father forgive them for they know not what they do what a beautiful picture of what it means to love your enemies but i can i can already hear you know some people thinking so yeah but that was jesus and i mean jesus is He did things all the time that we can't do, right? I mean, that's a fair question. And I might, in some cases, I might tend to agree with you. But he's not the only example that we have of this kind of love being portrayed for us in Scripture or in history. And I've got two other examples for you, of course. Acts chapter 7. Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Stephen goes on trial for his faith in Christ. He's making a proclamation in front of the Jewish council making a proclamation recounting the glorious history of Israel and God's working through them and revealing to them the prophecies that pointed forward to the coming Christ and proclaiming that those prophecies have now been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And he was taken out of the city and he was stoned. And as they're hurling stones at him, he looks up to heaven and cries out, Father, hold not this sin against them. Fast forward 100 years or so. A man by the name of George Wishart or Vishart. He'd been sentenced to death for his reformation work in Scotland, so I guess we're going ahead a few hundred years, and as he goes to be executed, this is a guy whose reputation for helping the poor and the needy was well known and well respected by so many, but he goes to be executed and his his executioner hesitates, and he's just struggling with whether or not he can carry this out. And George Bishart goes over to him, kisses him on the cheek, and says, let that be a token that you may know that I forgive you. And he's executed. Love your enemies. Is it an easy thing? No. No, it's it's a supernatural thing. It's a thing that we can't do on our own. It's a thing that only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through us in submission to Christ. It is a reality in which we are recognize our weakness. When we're told to love our enemies, everything within our being rebels against that command. And yet Christ compels us to love those who have wronged us, to to do good to those who have harmed us. And in fact, he tells us, even there, he says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Now, I don't think the second instruction is just an addition to what he's already said. I think this is a means of getting it done. In fact, it's a parallel statement. In another passage, um, Jesus says in Luke 6, 27 through 28, he says, I say to you, who hear, to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. He says, love, do good, bless, and pray. These are all expressions of the primary command, which is to love. But the special thing about prayer is not only that it is an expression of love for your enemies, but I believe that He gives this to us because it is the means by which we get there. Prayer is the means by which God works in our hearts to bring us in line with His will. Prayer is not just us coming before God and and giving Him our to-do list. No matter, We may approach it that way sometimes, but that's not what prayer is, communing with a holy God so that our will might be aligned with His will and that we might work together for the glory of His name. We're called to love our enemies and the way we get there is through prayer. Our nation, our churches, our city, our state, our world is in need of this kind of love. Jesus told His disciples that the world would know them by their love for one another. But it's not just our love for one another. It's love for our enemies. It's love expressed in the most difficult of circumstances. It's love that is given when we don't feel like giving it. We cannot follow Christ and be a slave to our emotions, to our preferences, to our own personal desires. The only way to follow Christ is to subject ourselves wholly. And fully to God's word. And to live obediently to him. I wish I had ten ways I could tell you to make this a reality in your life. But everybody's life is a little bit different. Everybody's challenges are a little, are particular to the things that they're dealing with in their life. we don't have to know all of the specifics but we do have to pursue righteousness and we do have to be obedient to God's word and God's calling and we do have to honor him with the way that we interact and respond to others that's the challenge for us it's the reality that shows us that I can't possibly do what Christ has called me to do on my own." We recognize, I think a lot of times in our, when we're confronted with the reality of sin in our life, we recognize that Christ is our only hope for overcoming sin. But I'll tell you, Christ is our only hope for being obedient to God's Word, period. First and foremost in overcoming sin and cleansing us and in making us whole and adopting us into His family. Christ is our answer for that, but it's not just that one-time profession of faith in which we pray to receive Christ, in which we receive Him as Lord and Savior. That's not the only time we need Him. We need Him each and every day, every moment of every day from that time forward through the rest of eternity. We need Him working in us and instructing us and encouraging us and helping us and teaching us and allowing us to understand what His Word teaches, and to understand what we have to do to honor Him so that we might be a living testimony of the power of the Gospel. Because it all comes back to that one reality, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and that Christ Jesus alone has paid the penalty for sin, and is the one who will bring us to glory not by works of righteousness which we have done but by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit he saves us and he empowers us to walk in his word and in his way let's pray together father I thank you Lord for the abundance of your grace I thank you father for the opportunity to know and understand, Father, that what our world needs in the darkness and in the hurting and in the desperation that it is experiencing, Father, that what it needs is the light of the gospel. And Father, that gospel is manifested through your people. And so you have called upon us this day, Father, to set aside our selfishness and our self-righteousness and our preferences and, and our feelings, Lord, and to do that which honors and glorifies you. Because it's not about us. It's not about what we want. It's not about our, our own comfort and our own desires, Lord. It's, it's about living in a way that demonstrates our love for you. And we love you, Lord. We love you because you first loved us. and Father, you have called us to share that love with those people that you bring into our lives. But, Lord, we recognize our inability to carry that out on our own. And we ask, Father, for your empowering. We ask for your strength. We ask, Father, for the conviction of your Spirit to... to to lead us to a place of repentance where we've failed to love as you've called us to love. And we ask for help moving forward, Lord, that we might live that love out. Oh, Lord, let us be a people for your own glory and purposes. That regardless of what may come our way, we will stand on the truth of your word and in the love of Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray.